Clap again for Amy. <laughs> oh my goodness. And because she had so many things that she had to tell you, she had two things that they didn't want to put in her charge, so I get to tell you about them now. And because both of them have to do with money, it's also a little bit easier because I don't get paid by this place and I can talk to you about money. And so two more quick announcements, both having to do with money. Number one, if you're one of those people that likes to uh, take more of your money and give it to the church towards the end of the year so that you will not be slain as badly in taxes this year, which is prep for it anyway. But you, if you're planning on doing that, make sure that it somehow gets to us before December 31st uh, so that we can show that it actually went out uh, in 2021. That's the first one. The other one, a tradition that we have here, one of the blessings that I get uh, of not being on paid staff here is uh, as part of the leadership team, I get to see what our paid staff actually gets paid. Yeah, it's not much. Very much not much. And so they do so much more than what we pay them for. And so as a tradition, one of the things we like to do is to say thank you this time of year to help them out with their holiday spending. And so we give them uh, a staff Christmas gift. And so if you would like to contribute to that, I would encourage you to do so. If you're somebody over 40, you'll know what a check is. And a check, actually, you can write staff Christmas gift in the, the uh, memo line. If you are under 40 and you use the interwebs for everything that you do, you can do it through the interwebs as well. I'm not sure exactly how to do that because I'm over 40 than under 40, but you, you can kind of figure it out. Staff Christmas gift is just how you'll want to designate those funds. So here we are in the Christmas season, the most wonderful time of the year. Yes? Some of you are starting to hear Bing Crosby like I am in the back of my head when I say that. Another way that we call this time of year is a season of Advent, a time in which we celebrate the fact that Jesus came, and this is when we, we uh, do all of the things that we would normally do to celebrate those things. If you are going to join with me in studying scripture about the celebration of Advent, and you forgot your Bible, oh dear, just wave around, and some of our fantastically attractive individuals will put a Bible in that waving hand, and that way you can study with us. Once you get that Bible, uh, what I want you to do is open it up to Matthew chapter 3. So if you don't use our Bible, then open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 3 or use whatever gizmo that you use to find the text of Scripture. <clears throat> During the season of Advent, as we prepare for Christmas, I want to talk to you this morning about what it looks like to prepare for the Lord's coming. What are some of the things, I actually want you to answer this question, what are some of the things that you do in preparation for Christmas? Just shout them out to me. Decorate. Decorate. Decorations, yes, yes, very much so. What? You buy gifts, yes, or make them, I suppose, or, I don't know, steal them from places. <laughs> I'm not sure what you do. I just All you said was gifts. So. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe for a short period of time. <laughs> Parties. Christmas parties. How could we forget Christmas parties? What else? Baking, of course. We must bake. We must get fat to celebrate Jesus. What else? Christmas music. Christmas cookies. So many Christmassy things. I'm so glad that you said Christmas music, although you know where I'm going with this. Uh, 
Christmas, some of you are like the Christmas music turns on like November 1st, a curse upon your home because (laughs) you're, you're not enjoying Christmas music the way it ought to be. You have to get to the Christmas season, but come December 1, that's when the Christmas music starts a flowing. And this morning, as we think about prepping for Christmas and the Christmas music that we use to prepare, I want you to learn with me an old forgotten song that you may not, it might sound somewhat familiar to you, but by the end of this morning, you will be singing this song with me, okay? The song goes like this. Repent! (laughs) Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. I'm not sure if you've heard it before. I mean, that, that was like the original version. They made a few adjustments, I think, before they released it to the public. You know, when we talk about Christmas, it's not, this is not a song that we have a tendency to sing. And yet, as we talk about the preparation for the coming king, it's the very thing that was being told to the people. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to work with chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now that your Bibles are open, we have a tradition here. If you can, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can remind our body how significant it is that we are reading the words of God right now. So stand with me as I read Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nice job. I may have her come up. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus, when I read this passage, I hear John telling me that you will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and that is what I beg for now. Baptize this time. Holy Spirit, come and speak through me. Speak your words. Holy Spirit, open up hearts that the words might be received. Holy Spirit, empower us that we would be the type of people who live out your words. We give you this time as an act of worship. Amen. You can be seated. 
So, in all reality, you thought that I was joking, but I'm actually going to have you sing this song with me throughout the morning. And it might feel really weird, because it is weird. But I'm doing it for a reason, and I will explain that reason. But every time you hear me this morning say the word, repent! I, oh, you're picking up what I'm putting down, aren't you? You're ready. Collectively, you will respond with, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. I know that it's weird. Trust me, there's a reason for it. It's not just that I'm weird. I am weird, but not just that I'm weird. See, when, I, when we look at Matthew chapter 3 and we're talking about preparing for the coming king, we are first introduced to John the Baptist. And I, I'm going to talk this morning about a lot of giant concepts because there's so much latent meaning in what was said and done around Jesus coming and the things that we talk about about Jesus coming. And I don't want to assume that you know at all what I'm talking about. So sometimes I'll jump into these little crash courses. The first one here, I want you to understand who John the Baptist was. Matthew doesn't tell us much about John the Baptist. He actually, we get more information from the gospel writer Luke. Keep your finger in Matthew 3 and switch over to Luke chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, we're going to be on page 855. Luke chapter 1. And I, I mean, I, I do that. I know sometimes people snicker when I do that, but I do that recognizing that there's all kinds of ranges of people with experience with the Bible here, and I'd rather you not be stressed out about getting there. So if a page number helps you, great. Pick that page number, all right? So Luke chapter 1. In this, in this uh, portion that we're going to read, the angel Gabriel shows up to a man by the name of Zechariah, who was a priest in God's temple, and tells him, hey, you're going to have a son. Let's pick it up here at the end of verse 13. Luke 1, end of verse 13, you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. When Zechariah heard that message, he heard something that you and I probably don't hear. We hear those words, right? And those words make sense to us. The thing is, is that Zechariah was intimately familiar with the Old Testament text and knew that when Gabriel was providing that information to him, that Gabriel was actually quoting from the Old Testament text. If you actually go to the last, just a couple pages over from Matthew chapter 3 to the last page of your Old Testament, you'll end up at the end of a prophecy by a prophet by the name of Malachi. At what Malachi brought, in Malachi chapter 4 was this message. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
one of the things that you'll notice, especially if you're using one of the church Bibles, at the end of that, the, one of the church Bibles, the page at the end of what I just read for you, it's blank. This blankness right here, and then if you turn to the next page, it, there's probably a blank page in yours. You might think that that's just like an editing thing, but I'd like to think that this is actually symbolic of what happened. Right after that was said by Malachi, God provided no special revelation for 400 years. It was the last thing he said to his people for 400 years. Then he dropped the mic and left the page blank for a while. The first thing then that ends up getting told to John's father, Zechariah, is that, hey, that Elijah guy that I told you about 400 years ago, he's coming back and he's going to come in the spirit of your son. And he is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Now you'll notice from what, what you saw in, in, uh, in what Gabriel promised Zechariah is that this was a preparation for the day of the Lord, which is such a huge concept that I want to give you a mini crash course in real quick so that you know what it is that they'd be thinking when you start hearing these terms, day of the Lord. The day of the Lord meant the return of the Lord, and it came with three things. Number one, it would be the return of God as king. Number two, it would be the restoration of God's people as the ultimate kingdom. And number three, it would come with wrathful judgment on God's enemies. So when these people were being told that Elijah and in the spirit, Elijah's spirit in John the Baptist would be prepping for the day of the Lord, for the coming of the king, that they would be prepped for the return of God the king and the restoration of God's people and God's wrathful judgment. John came singing the song that we sing this morning in a specific way to prepare people for the day of the Lord. And what is it that John first told us to prepare for? How do we prepare according to verse 2? He told us, repent! One of you like jumped the gun. You were like so ready. Oh, he's going to say it! (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now, you don't need to sing if I say the word repentance. I'm going to be very... I said, I just told you, I don't need it. I'll be careful with my words. When we talk about repentance, we need to know what it is that we're talking about. And I'm going to stop here, not only to define what it is that we're talking about, but to recognize that some of you in this room are probably dealing with a lot of church hangover in some way, shape, or form. And when somebody throws out the R word, it sends a shudder down your spine and takes you back to, I don't know what. Maybe you were in some type of church where it was just customary that every week that you would go, the person standing from the front, this person's job was to tell you how miserably awful that you were, and if only you were better, and if you went out there and acted better, your life would be better, and he got all wound up and would constantly use this R word, and so now when you hear it, you're kind of like, I don't like that. There's a part of that, unfortunately, a part of that idea that we can't get around, Because when we talk about this word, when we talk about this idea, we have to recognize that you and I, 
And I want you to hear, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about what you need to do in as much as what we need to do, what you and I need to do. We need to, definition of this word, repentance means change the thinking that we have about our sin and our shortcoming. That's literally what the word means, to change the way that you think about your sin. You see, what Paul tells us later in the book of Romans, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and every single one of us are in this place where our thinking has become twisted, and on a pretty much daily basis, let's just be honest, I'm being polite, on a daily basis, a multiple times per day basis, you and I think wrongly about our thoughts, our words, and our actions. What we need is to change our mind. You see, through Scripture, God has directly commanded certain things of me. And on a daily basis, I refuse to follow those commands as if I say something to God like, I know you're in charge and you've done everything for me, but I really don't care what you want. I want what I want. Now, when you hear that, sometimes people have a tendency to just categorize it, well, like, I, I, I want to strangle this person to death, and I didn't. Yay, God! Right? <laughs> yes, that is a great first step, buddy. Good job. Okay? But this goes far beyond the fact that you didn't kill somebody that made you angry or that you didn't steal something to give as a Christmas present. Friends, when I... When I hate my enemy, when I choose to not give generously, when I choose in gratitude to not be thankful, when I don't even keep my word, these are all shortcomings directly commanded by God in the New Testament. These are sins. These are things that I need to recognize that I'm making light of my treason against the God of the universe. And in as much as I don't want you to feel beaten down by this time this morning, we have to start from a place of honesty that all of us in this room are a wreck. And that's okay. No one wanted you to show up today to show us how perfect you are because we know you're lying. Why? Because I know what's in here. I know that I'm a wreck too. We're a mess. And what John needed the people to understand was that they needed to change the way that they were thinking about their treason against God. What John needed the people to recognize is that they had to repent. You're leading the way, aren't you? <laughs> Why? Verse 2. There's a reason here. Why? For the kingdom of heavens, the kingdom of the heavens has approached. Depending upon what version of the Bible you have there, you might have kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The kingdom of God has approached. The kingdom of the heavens is near. There is a ton of information that is out there about the kingdom of God. Volumes and volumes and yet, for whatever reason, if your history is anything like me, I've been a part of the church for the majority of my life. After that, 
I took my parents' hard-earned money. It was a blessing. I'm not going to act like it wasn't a privilege. My parents gave me that money, and I gave it to people to teach me more about the Bible and how to handle it well. Then I collected my own money, and I paid more people to teach me about the Bible. And then I spent the rest of my life trying to understand how to better communicate to people what the Bible has to say. And interestingly enough, one of the biggest themes that Jesus talks about is something that never really gets discussed. What it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What's the kingdom of the heavens? There's so much that we don't educate you on. And speaking as one who's responsible for teaching within the body of Christ, I'm sorry. I want to do better at that. We want to do better at that. Let me give you just a super quick crash course of what it meant for John to say the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God, has drawn near. You see, when God had put together his people group, his intention was to be their king. He wanted to be their king. And yet what the people of Israel did is they do what people constantly do. They said, we want to be like everybody else. It was so adorable this week. I was at the skate park. Literally every single 14-year-old boy looked exactly the same. They were wearing the same outfit. I won't describe it because I don't want to embarrass anybody that has a part of that outfit in here. But they all wanted to be individuals like their friends, right? Like, we all have this innate desire. I want to belong and I want to be like everybody else. And that's what the people of Israel did. And they said, God, we know that you want to be our king, but we want a human king just like everybody else. And God, the infinite giver, goes, okay, fine, let's try it out. Gives him a king. First one, doesn't work out so well. But then, then King David is anointed. And the pinnacle moment of the people of God occurs. Under David, the mighty king, they cannot lose a battle. They have the land. People are recognizing that this kingdom is the center of power. They know there's something special about it. The problem was that as David's line continued and remained in, in charge of being the king, the people didn't hold up their end of the bargain to the king and most importantly to God. And so God allowed them to start being defeated God allowed them to feel a giant sense of separation from God and from one another, even to the extent of being taken out of the land to other countries. But while he was allowing that, he was sending them messengers to tell them, the kingdom is going to come back. It's going to return. And when it does, it will come with it the day of the Lord, remembering those things that I've told you about, those three things, that the return of God will be, the, it will be that God will return as king and that the people will be restored and that enemies will receive wrathful judgment. And the people were looking forward to this moment. And when John came on the scene telling people that this moment is right here, it's starting, it's coming in front of you, the people knew what he was saying. The writer Matthew, though, decided that we needed to know a little bit more about this and gives us verse 3. When John was saying these things, it, this one, what he was speaking, 
he was fulfilling Isaiah the prophet saying, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the road of the Lord, make his path straight. What John is doing there is described by one of these prophets I've told you about, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Flip over there. Keep your finger in Matthew, but flip over to Isaiah chapter 40. In one of the church Bibles, it's 599. In Isaiah chapter 40, we get the description of what Matthew is telling us is going on with John the Baptist. And in all of the disaster, in all of the separation, in all of the failure, and the fact that nobody was quite getting what they wanted, this was God's message to his people. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. One of the standard practices during this, this time, and as I described this scene, a very famous scene of Jesus' story will probably pop into your mind. It was customary for when people were receiving a king that was going to be taking over a kingdom, they would go out to that king as he approached the city and they'd lay stuff down on the rough dirt roads to make those roads straighter and smoother for the approaching king. It was a physical way of going out to the king saying, we receive you as our king. You might remember that scene when Jesus rides in on a donkey and the people are out there laying down palm branches and cloaks on the road, receiving them, receiving him as their king. What Isaiah was saying in his prophecy, what John is saying, is that they want, he was preaching this message that they would receive Christ, this coming king, and that the day of the Lord would begin. If you go over to Isaiah uh, stay in chapter 40, but just go down to verse 9 on the same page. We see this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. You see, we sometimes have a tendency to not see all of these things because we're not quite as accustomed to Old Testament prophecy. And so Matthew wanted this to be abundantly clear by starting not just with chapter 3, but starting in chapter 1. If you go back to Matthew and just flip over to the beginning of chapter 1, what you're going to see is a bunch of names that are really hard to say. I'm not going to try to say them because it will make me look foolish. But Matthew wants to drive home a point with these names. This, you'll see in the title of your Bible, it will probably say something like the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew wanted to show you what is Jesus' genetic lineage. And after the first group of names, starting with Abraham in verse 2, he works his way down to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of who? David what? Don't forget the next two words. The king. 
showing that Jesus comes from the kingly lineage. And maybe you got lost somewhere when you were reading verse 6, and so he wants to make sure that you get it, and he writes verse 17. Look at 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Who's mentioned twice in verse 17? David. Remember the pinnacle moment of God's people as the kingdom of God was when they had David as their king. Matthew starts his message for the preparation of the coming king by showing that he was indeed in the line of King David. He wanted his people to know that the king is here and the proper response is to bow and to submit, to make the path straight. And so John comes on the scene knowing that the people had to be prepared to receive this king. And it started first with a change in thinking. And so he told them, repent. Are you special, Gabe? You're not going to sing? <laughs> Trust me, there's a method to my madness. There is. Go back to Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, we show that, that John was the legitimate manifestation of a new prophet. In chapter 3, verse 4, John had his garment from camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. One of the main ways that people knew that there was a prophet speaking for God was not that they flew in mighty jets and wore nice suits and ate good food and had giant houses. It was that they lived a life of austerity, often out in the wilderness where the majority of people hated them. They wore about the most pathetic thing that would just barely cover them because that's all they could afford, and they ate bugs for, for their sustenance. Nobody chooses that to then cheat people with a message. John's behaviors were straight from the textbook of prophets. And as a result, people were responding, weren't they? Look at 5 and 6. And they went out to him, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, and they were being baptized in the Jordan River by him, confessing their sins. The people were responding to the message of John. Now, there were two things that were happening in their response. One, they were being baptized. Now, there's not a, a ton of information predating this moment that tells us a lot about what baptism meant. It might find its roots in some of the ritual purification that was taking place under Jewish law in preparation for certain meals or certain ceremonies. The priests had to purify and wash themselves a certain way before their priestly duties. But there was an interesting custom that was also showing up on the scene right before the New Testament times. The Jews knew that their salvation came from God alone. And it was their understanding that it was only through being part of the Jewish culture and ethnicity that anyone would be saved. When Gentiles would come to them and say, hey, we need you to let us in so that we can get saved too the Jews would make them do two practices. One, the sign of circumcision, which was clearly a part of the law. But they had started also baptizing them. And in this baptizing, 
what they would do is they would physically take somebody and put them under the surface of water to signify that they were dead and then take them up out of the water to signify that they were now in a new life. They had been born into a new family. Paul takes this idea, and when he explains baptism more for us in his writing, tells us that that is what we are doing in the practice of baptism, identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. People were coming to to be baptized by John, and their response when they went through this purification process, this new identification process, their response, the last part of verse 6, what were they doing? They were confessing their sins. I've already hit on this idea, but imagine this type of religious scene. This is a very different religious scene than the majority of my experience has been. Normally, right, you, you show up at church and you've got your best clothes on, you have your best face on, you say your kindest words, and everybody here acts super friendly, smiley, happy. And it's because we want you to think that everything is perfect. What was going on in the scene? People were signifying their own death, coming up and saying, I'm an absolute disaster. I wonder if you might enjoy coming to church a little bit more when you realize that you don't have to be perfect to get here. I wonder if you might enjoy coming to church a little bit more when you stop expecting that somebody else in this room is perfect. We don't come here because we're perfect. I'm not in front of you teaching you God's word because I've got this stuff nailed together. We're all a wreck. That's okay. God is taking us from that spot. And in our preparation for Christ as our king, we start from that place of honesty. We start to sing this song and we become a whole lot more accustomed to being okay with our need to repent. Good, good, good. Notice who else shows up. Verse 7. And John, seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming... And then there's a little bit of a difficulty with the translation of what occurs next. Some of your versions might say coming to where he was baptizing. Uh, some of your versions might say they were coming to be baptized. Some of them might take kind of a middle of, a, middle of the road and say, and coming to his baptism. Let me tell you first about the Pharisees and Sadducees. A ton needs to be said, but I'm just going to say just real quickly that remember that in the kingdom of Israel, there was no division of church and state. The laws weren't issued by some secular body of government. They were issued and written down in the Old Testament, and it became the responsibility of the religious leaders to ensure that people were following those laws by what they taught, by what they enforced. They were the government and the religious leaders at the same time. So they had a responsibility of ensuring that people were doing the right things, even though it wasn't just like a moral thing, it was also just a social situation. At minimum, these Pharisees and Sadducees are showing up to this major scene that's happening to try to figure out what in the heck is going on. Now, maybe they were coming themselves to be baptized, which would have been awesome. And maybe that actually did occur. It seems a little bit inconsistent in terms of what we would find in the rest of the Gospels because they end up typically, the 
the religious leaders end up being like the antagonists in the story. Not a lot of great things are said about the religious leaders. But they needed to check out what was occurring because it was so significant. And John saw that they came, and having freshly read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, turns to them and says, You brood of vipers! That's how he leads off. Now, I'm so used to just, like, reading the text. I, I, I hear the word brood of vipers, and I'm like, what? Okay, yeah, that's just something that he said. But the word literally means, like, viper babies. Like, as if snakes weren't terrifying enough, take, like, the tiny snakes that move faster and are harder to control, and they're just, and then, like, like uh, the Temple of Doom scene where they, like, slit the belly, and there's, like, a billion of them that, like, come, ugh! That's, that's John's lead-off line. Hey, viper babies, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Because remember, part of the day of the Lord, the coming of the king was going to mean that God's wrath was going to be poured out on his enemies. Throughout Scripture, we're told that religious leaders are going to be subject to greater judgment Because our words and our actions, sometimes because we do them poorly, act as an obstacle for those who need to believe the message. But John does not completely write them off. He instructs them. Verse 8. Therefore, produce fruit, and then your version of of your Bible will kind of struggle with this idea here of the equal with repentance or in keeping with repentance. The word picture that's there is, have you ever seen those old school scales that have like the two sides on them and you put stuff on one side and then you'd stack stuff on the other side until it evened out? What John was telling them is, hey, your repentance needs to look like something that is completely evened out. You need to produce your fruit You need to act in such a way that shows that you have accepted that repentance is required of you too, religious leaders. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 9. And this verse right here, I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you a lot of exciting things this morning. This is the one that I get the most excited about. And it's kind of an obscure one, and maybe it's just because I'm weird and I get excited by obscure truths. But this one is really excited. So just kind of share some of my excitement here for a moment. When John turns to them and says, Do not even think to say within yourself, We've got a father, Abraham. You see, for the religious leaders, for a Jew, the assumption was, I've already shared this idea, that you needed to be a Jew to be a part of the true God. And so they thought that as long as their ethnic line could be traced back to Abraham, I'm good to go. I'm in. It really doesn't matter exactly what I do. I could probably get away with a little bit as long as I'm part of Abraham. What does John say about Abraham? I say to you that God's able to make kids for Abraham out of these rocks. You think that your ethnicity is important? No! The Apostle Paul takes this idea and expands it in Romans chapter 4, which we won't look at this morning, but it's a great place to explore this more. Paul writes that Abraham's descendants are not those of a particular ethnic descent, 
but it's those who are God's people by their faith in Jesus the King. One of the weirdest things sometimes is when I hear people say that Christianity is too exclusive. And I'm going, I, I, it's one of the only religions in the world that, that you don't have to be any type of ethnicity or act like any type of ethnicity. It doesn't matter where you came from, how much money you make, what part of the world that you grew up in. We become family, not because of our ethnic lines, but because of our commitment to Jesus the King and placing our faith in him. It's a beautiful thing. John rounds out his message to the religious leaders by telling them, already the axe is laying at the root of the trees. You need to know that every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He preps them for the reality that your ethnicity or your role in the kingdom isn't enough. You're going to need to recognize that Jesus is your king and you're going to have to repent. We're almost there. For those of you that hate to sing, we're almost there. He tells us more about this coming king in 11 and 12. John says, I baptize you all into repentance. But behind me comes one who is mightier than me, who I am not even worthy to remove or carry his sandals. Stop there for a second because you probably don't exactly, you can't appreciate that as much. You see, in our culture, it's perfectly acceptable for you to come over to my house and walk on my floor with your nasty shoes. And I'll look at it and go, ew, but I won't say anything because some people are even more afraid of their bare feet than their shoed feet. But in the rest of the cultures of the world, you take your shoes off before you go into a house. The shoes are then tucked away because it's kind of the unsightly part of your exterior garments. In the Latino culture, when you do something wrong, you get spanked by the chancla. You get hit by that chancla, not just because it's a weapon of opportunity, but because there's something embarrassing about getting hit by such of the disgusting item. For those of you old enough to remember, you remember the, the news scene when they pulled Saddam's statue down and people gathered around it? What were they doing? They were hitting it with their shoes. The ultimate sign of insult. Because shoes were disgusting. You didn't touch people's shoes. John says, the guy that's coming behind me, I'm not even worthy enough to touch his, touch his nasty shoes. That's how significant he is. And his significance will be shown in that he will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, John recognized that he could help people, John realized that he could help people recognize their need for repentance. He realized that his job was to prepare them for the coming king. But he recognized that he was not capable of doing what the king could do. Only the king, the king alone, could administer the Holy Spirit and had the right to purifying judgment. Remember this, friends. Inasmuch as repentance is so crucial for us, it is merely the starting point. 
acknowledging, thinking correctly about our sin doesn't fix it. It just gets us off on the right start. We still need to be purified to be cleansed of it. Only by the work of Jesus can that purification occur. And inasmuch as you'll see in this passage the times when there's emphasis on bearing fruits and doing things and you've got to do stuff, don't lose the core message that John could prepare you and your mind for how you needed to think about your sin. But then he turns to Jesus and says, only Jesus can actually deal with your sin. In verse 12, we get a, an image of Jesus dealing with sin. He says that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. You, this image might be lost on you, but when you work with wheat, there's a whole lot of the wheat plant that you don't get to use. There's a little bit of it, the wheat nugget or kernel, or there's probably some farmer term, and I grew up in L.A., so I don't know it. But there's other parts of the wheat that aren't edible. And so the process of separating those two would be that you take that stuff and you'd use a tool, this winnowing fork, and, be, and pick it up on a windy day, and the grains of wheat would fall to the ground, the usable stuff, and the unusable stuff would get picked up by the wind and blown away. The image that John gives about what Jesus would be doing is that he's finally going to separate the real from the unreal. Jesus is finally going to do the work that the day of the Lord anticipated, that he would bring not just blessing for the people of God, but that finally the stuff that's fake, all the stuff that surrounds us that has been unusable or a distraction or a problem is going to be separated from us. So how must we prepare for the coming king, according to John? We celebrate this coming king, recognizing that his birth and then his subsequent ministry and what he clearly stated that he would be coming again to bring the total fulfillment of the kingdom. How do we prepare? Last time, John's word to us, we start with repent. Okay, I may accidentally say that word from this point out, but I have no expectation that you will sing, please stop. Because I, I want to tell you why it is that I've had you do this ridiculous exercise the entire time. Number one, anytime you hear that song playing in a mall or whatever, it's going to have a different meaning to you at this point. But I don't do it because I want to make light of it. That's not my goal at all. I want us to grow way more accustomed to our need for it. Let me share with you a little personal story of how I got to do it this week. I was sitting down with my wife at the table, and I was sharing with her this new idea that I had. And I was so excited about the idea. And God, using the refining that is the marital relationship, showed me your idea is bad. <laughs> now, my first response was not to, yes, Father, I accept the answer that you are giving to me through my wife. My first response might be something similar to what you might deal with. How dare she? 
right? I immediately went to all of these selfish and accusing thoughts. She's holding me back. She doesn't care what I want. Think of how fulfilling our marriage could be if she just yielded to my desires. I'm so grateful that pretty quickly God planted in my head. Brad, remember what you're preparing for this week? Repent. Fa la 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 la. Can you think of how easy it would be for the enemy to bring dissatisfaction in my marriage over something so stupid? How he would love to rob my joy that I have in my 20-year marriage to my wife over some dumb idea that I had. And my first reaction was to think that I needed more fulfillment. No, no, no. My first reaction was to yield after I recognized my need to repent. Because in that yielding, I get to experience so much more joy in my relationship with my wife. The enemy doesn't want that. He wants to make my marriage as ineffective as he possibly can because he knows that if I fail at my marriage, when I get up here to teach you this word, you're not going to care what I have to say. He's chipping away at me in any way he possibly can. And he used this dumb little idea that doesn't even matter to try to sow that seed in me. And I am so grateful that God placed in my mind, Brad, what you need to do in this moment is to repent of your stupid thoughts and recognize the great thing that sits before me in my marriage. The reason why I shared this silly song was not just to get you to think that anytime you hear those follow laws, but that we need to grow way more accustomed to the fact that we're all broken and all in need of repentance. None of us in this room, none of us in this room, I'm going to say it again, none of us in this room does not need to repent. I'll say it a different way. All of us in this room, all of us in this room, all of us in this room needs repentance on a regular basis. Which is... Even more exciting for me that we get to celebrate communion in response to this. This just ended up being the first Sunday of the month that I got to speak, and I wanted you to understand this text, but as Colin's going to come up and start playing some music, and as the leaders, uh, if you, those of you that are in the room, if you could come forward and start grabbing the communion elements and start helping to pass them out. I want you to understand clearly what this is and is not. Because sometimes we have a tendency to see these church practices like communion and we misunderstand them. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page of what this is. This right here is not God's forgiveness. It's not. This here is a a celebration, a symbolic celebration of a feast that was instituted by Jesus who by his actions would later forgive us and provide purity for our sins. It started in Matthew 26. Jesus, right before he ended up being crucified, was sitting and eating with his followers and said this. He took bread 
And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It was the blood of Jesus that would provide the forgiveness that they needed. Now, here's the thing about this. This is a meal, a symbolic meal, a meager meal, albeit, because we've got to feed a lot of people. But it's a tiny meal, but it's a celebration. You see, I don't know if you remember studying that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about how the Corinthians weren't taking communion seriously enough. But his concern was that their communion parties, because they were parties, were turning into a drunken mess where there were, people were overeating, overdrinking, and, and not even saving some for the other people to be able to celebrate. And so in response, at least what I have experienced, is that we swung our pendulum in the opposite direction and turned this celebration into some type of solemn affair. It's not a solemn affair. This is a celebratory meal, which, yes, we need to take seriously. But our our seriousness needs to be a recognition of what's happening here. To enjoy this time, using the symbolic body and blood of these elements, all that's needed is for you to answer this question for yourself. Are you willing to sing this repentant song to yourself on a regular basis? Are you willing to respond to its lyrics? Like I've shared with you now multiple different ways, the expectation is not that you are perfect. The expectation is that you realize this point from the truth that all of us are in need of forgiveness. And once you have recognized that, it sits there for you freely. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is great news. For those of us who are willing to repent and to stop pretending that our sin doesn't matter, or even worse, doesn't even exist, that we are willing to look at that sin and all of its horridness look it straight in the ugly face and see it for the rebellion against the king of the universe that it actually is, if that's you, then forgiveness sits wrapped under a tree with a tag with your name on it. It's free. You don't have to do anything. It's not some magic words you have to say. You don't necessarily even have to do this magic symbolic ceremony. The reason we do it is to remind ourselves of how special it was that the king came, yes, with might, yes, to restore the kingdom to Israel, yes, to bring in far more people than the Jews ever would have had, but to do so first through his own death, the brokenness of his body, the blood being shed for your sins. That's something worth celebrating. So, 
what we're going to do or how we're going to do this is I want you to just take a moment as you've, once you've received these, this cup of juice and that little cracker thing, hold it there for a moment. Not because you have to get yourself to this super serious place, but just let God help you be real with yourself for a moment. Where is it that you need to change your thinking, that you need to fa-la-la a little bit, and lay it before his feet and receive his forgiveness. That will make this far more meaningful. That will be the point of this ceremony, to then praise him and celebrate that his forgiveness is so freely distributed to anyone who would receive it. So once you have the elements, I'm going to have you take them at your own pace. Take the moment that you need. Get yourself to that place, being willing to to receive that forgiveness. Then the musicians are going to progressively come up and share a song with you in response to that.